For those close readers of the Belfast Telegraph, uh, I apologize. If you came expecting Desi Alexander, I'm told it was in the Telegraph last night. I don't know why we, 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 we grew up in the same town, we went to the same school, we were very nearly contemporaries. I really have no idea why we get mixed up. We only share Desi. He has the brains, I have the good looks, and <laughs> really don't, don't quite know what it happens. So, just in case you're mixed up, and if you want to catch a bus now, I'll not be in any way offended. As we've been journeying through, incidentally, I never can sing that hymn, Gride Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, without hearing the cynic's version in the midst of the credit crunch, where the cynic says, so many Christians should now be singing, when I tread the verge of Jordan, land my safe on Canaan's side. It is a challenge, really, where we put our trust. But we're on a journey. You can't read the Bible without hiking boots. You can't read it tracing God's dealings and the unfolding nature of his promise without being prepared to move. And I always find it useful when I open the Bible and you, you step in to the huge diversity of stories from the, you know, you're constantly toggling between the individual and the universal, between the particular and the universal, to, to think about what gives unity to the whole. And for me, it's as if I begin to journey through a roadway. A roadway that begins with Genesis and in fact actually hasn't ended. We're still on this road, this road that speaks of Oh, God's unfolding plan. But when you look at the cosmic dimension of that road, when we have no access to where it started, nor at the moment do we have any access to where it will end, it's always important to at least know where we are. To be able to, as it were, have a sat-nav and locate ourselves in the big plan. This is so incredibly important when it comes to try to understand the Bible that we know things in context, where we establish context as king, and inevitably, well, we've got to know, in a sense, where this roadway is. Have we lost all power? All, all sound and no vision. Okay. <laughs> this is what, I wondered, Paul, the same problems. I think he did. I often wonder if Paul had a laptop and a PowerPoint, could he have sent more e-pistols? <laughs> Technology has its place, but oh, it's great when it works. But to be able to locate ourselves, because knowing what's gone before, knowing what comes after is so crucial. Now again, we're coming out into the desert. And as I said to you last week, in the Hebrew Bible, and the Bible as Jesus would have known it, he wouldn't have called this book Numbers, this fourth book. He would have known it by, well, there's a Hebrew tradition that they called the books by the first major word in the text. So, this fourth book is literally called In the Wilderness, Ba Midbar. And as we go out into the wilderness, this is not just for a historical exercise. 
because there's something timeless about the truths that God taught Israel in the wilderness. And that's why we need to tune in in stereo. And as we were listening to that passage from Hebrews chapter 3, it's not incidental that addressing a group of first century believers, the writer of the book of Hebrews, actually draws upon the experience of the wilderness. This was not some alien and remote experience. This was something that was so real he could draw upon. And this is something I think especially modern Christians have, well, they face the challenge of, I think, being a little bit more proactive about understanding the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scriptures. I'm reluctant to even talk about the Old Testament. For old, especially, well, you, know, you begin to think it's archaic, it's redundant, and we don't deliberately speak of it in deprecatory terms, but somewhere or another there's a certain pride in modern evangelicalism where we're New Testament believers. One of the most striking passages to me, and it always stops me in my tracks, is remember in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul was writing to first century Corinthians. He's writing into that very sophisticated Greek society. And Paul makes an astounding statement where he says, don't you remember what happened to our forefathers in the desert? What happened to our forefathers in the wilderness? Now, it's that striking little monosyllable, our, that Paul can use that hour writing to first century Corinthian believers, some of whom may well have been Gentiles, but he's almost, in a sense, doing for that first century church what Alex Haley did for black America when he wrote Roots. He's saying, this is where you came from. Your faith isn't just a little privatized, existential, momentary experience. It can't just be reduced to a decision to follow Jesus, but it has roots. It has got a history. And the clear implication is there is a relevancy to what happened in that wilderness, to what happened in the first century. And remember, the recipients of Corinthians as the recipients of the letter of Hebrews in terms of the big plan of God are in principle living in identical position to we are. I know they're living 2,000 years before us, but they're living between the first coming of the Lord and the second coming. And in that sense, they're in the same position as we are. So that's why this, there's a timeless relevancy to this. So this first century church, as it were, the writer of Hebrews is saying, I want you to listen in stereo. I want you to plug in to what God is saying, because in these early parts in the Hebrew scriptures, he's going to say so much. After the coming of Jesus and the interpretation of the Jesus event, he's going to tell us so much more. And it's when we listen to them both, then the lights go on. Then we come to understanding, because we understand the big picture of the entire scriptures. Not just a collection of inspirational little thoughts for the day, totally isolated little words that we can conveniently bring out for a calendar here or a pencil there, or a picture somewhere else. 
people who live with the we weren't mentality. I mean, isn't this, where, where has this idea come from? Because I'm fascinated. Everywhere you go now, you go into a restaurant, you want the wee menu. Take a wee seat. Here's the wee bill. Everything's become we. And then it's going to church. Oh, that was a great wee word. And a wee thought for the day. And the problem, and people get very sensitive to this. I was talking about this, and I didn't mean it in any nasty way, but going out one church one day, I was taken in by a senior figure and rebuked quite severely because his granny had a promise box and got a wee word every day. And he was very annoyed. He thought I was being quite disrespectful towards his granny. But the problem is, and I'm, I'm not trying to be cynical, but if we perpetuate this we word mentality, this sort of notion that the Bible is a collection of inspirational thoughts for the day that we can dip into by times, the we word robs us of the big picture. And we desperately need the big picture today. We desperately need to begin to understand the vastness of what God's revealing to us in the Scriptures. And as we come back into the desert, remember, we're being located, we're, we're being oriented towards a goal. Israel in the book of Numbers are a people on the march. They're journeying towards the promised land. And if you were to put yourself into the position of an ancient Israelite, on your horizon was, of course, the promised land. There was a goal. You were going somewhere. But as you looked at that journey, you know that from the biblical point of view, that's a journey that begins when? With a momentous intrusion of God into history, through the man of his choice, who brings his people through an experience of death, Passover, brings them through the waters, and they journey towards life. But to get to the destination, they have to journey through the wilderness. Do you see the structure of what's happening? In the wilderness, there are some surprises. We explored some of them last week. But look at what the writer of the book of Hebrews is doing now. Because there's a very strong sense of the parallel thinking here. The writer in Hebrews is very clearly drawing on an analogy. Look back to numbers. We are, well, things begin with this momentous intrusion of God into history through the man of his choice. They will end when they enter into the fulfillment of the promise. Now, do you see the structure then in the book of Hebrews? Because very clearly, as the writer of the book of Hebrews looks at God's actions in history, again he sees the intrusion of God into history. That's what the Christ event was. God taking the initiative through the man of his choice to burst into history and through an experience of death lead his people into freedom. It's not incidental. You remember those wonderful little, that wonderful, fascinating conversation between um, Moses and Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration? 
If the English versions had just left the original word of Luke, it would have all, oh, it would have made so much sense to us because Luke uses a Greek word that we all know. Moses was talking to Jesus about his axhodos. Do you see the analogy of what Jesus was going up to do in Jerusalem? The English versions usually say his departure. But look at the richness. Look at you know, the freight that's loaded into that world. Jesus was about to go up for his exodus, for yet again in the fullness and the most definitive and consummate sense, the man of God's choice had entered into history to confront alien powers to set people free and to bring them through the ultimate Passover into resurrection life and into freedom. So the analogy is so striking. So the book of Hebrews takes this up, knowing that having intruded into history, that was only the beginning of a journey, because those who embrace that exodus event begin a journey that is going to lead towards a consummation, a fulfillment of God's promise. So the analogy is so striking. For just as the Israelite looked to a defining moment in history, so we look back to a defining moment in history. And we also look forward to a consummation in history, when at the end of the plan, all is going to be drawn together, the promises will be fulfilled. So where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves, on the one hand, looking back to the reality of that historical intrusion, but also looking ahead. We're a pilgrim people. That's why I love in the book of Acts that the first Christians were called, do you remember, the way? I think that's a much more dynamic description of, of the faith because it suggests that idea of pilgrimage, that idea of journeying, that they are on a journey there's something very exciting, something very dynamic about this. And it keeps us from being, you know, sort of self-complacent. It keeps us from thinking that you simply join the church and preserve the status quo. And you know, like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are trodding where we've always trod. No, we're on a journey. A journey towards a consummate reality. And it's as we trace this journey towards the fulfillment of promise, the analogy with what has gone before, the Israelites journeying towards the promise. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say, look, come, take your New Testament text with me, and we'll explore what we can learn from this wilderness experience. And if you have a pew Bible handy, we're going to look quite closely at Hebrews chapter 3 and some of the issues that he draws on here. But as we look at Hebrews 3, remember, we're listening in stereo. Because on one ear, we're hearing the message of the book of Numbers. We're out in the wilderness. With the other ear, we're hearing the message from a first century writer who in principle is living in exactly the same location as we are. Looking back, but also looking forward. So let's listen. And what does this writer say? Because what I love about this book of Hebrews is, and indeed about Hebraic thought in general, it copes with robust reality. It doesn't degenerate 
into that sickeningly obsequious, saccharine, sort of evangelical speak with little slick cliches. There is something real, there is something robust, there is something earthy here, and it doesn't dress up life in the wilderness. It was tough, and there were failures there. So there's no ecclesiastical speak of sort of dressing everything up as if it was all hunky-dory. This was a real-life situation. Harsh realities are to be faced. So what's his advice? Looking back to the desert, he says to these first century believers who are obviously facing some difficulties, some of them falling by the wayside, he says, well, what's the first thing? Well, it emerges in chapter 3. He says, look, I want you to focus on Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers who share in this heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and the high priest, have we confess. Now look at the context for this. He goes on to talk about God's activity in history, where he speaks about Jesus being faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And here you have this amazing little section about God's house-building activity. Here's one of the most graphic depictions of the, the scope of God. There's several of them. But one of the most graphic is that spanning both ages, spanning both testaments, God is a house builder. And as he builds this house, listen, don't get stuck with the bricks and mortar. This is figurative language. The truth lies in the figurative, so don't get stuck with the bricks and mortar image of the house. For the writer in Hebrews says, we are his house. And, and this is one of the most graphic depictions of God at work in the world today. Do you know in rabbinic thought, they will teach that when God came down Mount Sinai to live in the tabernacle, that was second best. His first intention was to come down and to dwell in the lives of the people of Israel. But what happened? Well, when Moses was up the top of the mountain, and in Jewish thought, what happened at Sinai was like a wedding. God was marrying his bride Israel. But it's as if, you know, can you imagine the wedding? It was the talk of the community. Everybody was saying, oh, well, we're not surprised he's getting married. He's a man of great stature, great family. Oh, world-famous family. What did he ever see in her? She's a nobody. She's had quite a history. And you know they actually say that even when they were sitting at the wedding reception at the meal, she brought out, she, she had secreted away her cell phone. She was talking to one of her lovers. You see, while Moses was up the mountain drawing Israel and the Lord into a marriage, the bride was at the foot of the mountain being unfaithful with the golden calf, desecrating herself. And so in rabbinic tradition, God couldn't come down to live in this desecrated profane people. He came down to live 
in the tent. But you and I know, look what happens as God's story goes on. What happened at Pentecost? The same God who came down onto Sinai with flames comes down into the house in Jerusalem in flames, in his spirit. And now where does he dwell? He dwells in the hearts and the lives of his people. A new dwelling place where today one of the most dramatic, exciting, gargantuan of building projects is going on, where he is building a spiritual house. He is building a new temple with living stones, not with dead bricks, not with stained glass windows, not with polished oak, but with living stones. We are his house. This is a quite dramatic thing. This is the house in which Moses was originally a servant, but now Jesus is the son. Do you see the continuity here? Hebrews is raising one of these fundamental issues that we always got to think about when we read the Bible. What gives continuity through the whole thing, but what also creates discontinuity? Because when you come to Jesus, you come to a New Testament. Now, why is it new? What makes it new? Not because it never had been thought of before, but it's new in the sense it's fuller, richer, deeper, broader, clearer than anything that had gone before. And in this house that God is building, where the foundations had been laid, the structures were there, and Moses was serving as a servant, Jesus was to come as a son. Do you see this great upbuilding activity? This is part of it. And he's saying, look, I want you to focus on this reality. Focus on the big picture of what God is doing. You are part of this big plan that you can't just reduce this to some little individualistic existential encounter. You are part of a great upbuilding, house-building activity in which God had used Moses in the time and Christ came in his time. Do you see the identity that that gives us? And this is so incredibly challenging to the sort of privatized little private story of the so-called postmodern society. This is a big story in which we are part of. And in this big story, do you see what the writers Hebrews say? You are on the same road that they were on. You are in the same house. You share the roots of your faith. This is what's happening. I, Richard Lovelace puts it so graphically and so well. Not Richard Lovelace, sorry, Eugene Peterson, when he writes, Salvation is not a one-night stand. It cannot be isolated from the thick texture of history. It is all-encompassing, pulling everything that has happened and happens and every person named and unnamed into a relationship with the work of God in history. Do you see where we fit into the big story for little, ordinary, individual, particular folk in the, the particularity of our place and our time and our situation, but we fit into this big story. It was like that blinding moment when I discovered as a little Balamina man that actually Moses crossing the Red Sea was more important for my faith than Billy crossing the Boyne. When you see you're part of a big story, a huge story, 
and yet the individual counts. And who's at the heart of that story? Well, you focus on Jesus. But then the second piece of advice he gives in this passage is be open to the Spirit. You see at verse 7, he's just spoken of the reality of we being this house if we hold on to our courage, the hope which we boast. Today, so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. You see, the he didn't just say, as they did in the rebellion. Do you see this sort of inclusive language? As you did. In the, he's, he's drawing these people into this. Because the study of Israel is also a study of human nature. The more I study Israel in the Hebrew Bible, the more I see me. I see that capacity for unfaithfulness. I see that fickleness. I see the best intentions degenerating into woeful failures every day. The story of Israel is the story of every man. And maybe with Hilaire Bullock we might marvel how odd of God to choose the Jew. But in choosing them, he chose one of the most masterly teaching images and pictures imaginable. So the Lord of Israel in the desert, there was one of stubborn intransigence, of profligacy, of apostasy, of unfaithfulness. And he's saying, I want you to learn from them. Because today, if you hear his voice, I don't want you to react the same way as they did, with a stiffness of heart, with a, an intransigence of spirit, with a stubbornness. See that little word, today? See, what did the writer in Hebrews mean by today? Well, so often in modern evangelistic context, today is meant by, well, it's the same, the way they use this phrase, now is the day of salvation. It's almost, you know, that at 12 minutes to 12 today, if you don't make your decision, that's so reducing that today, and it's so reducing the now. For the today of the book of Hebrews, like the now of the Apostle Paul, is not something just to be gauged on the clock. It is something that spans the today. Is the today that marks the space between Jesus' first coming and his return. The today, the now as the moment of salvation, the now as the day of salvation. Those have got to be seen against the background of an Israel anticipation of a, of a Jewish hope for years, for centuries, longing for God to burst into history. And then as old Simeon took this child in his arm, now I can die in peace. Today is the day of salvation. This remarkable scope. Today, that today, when you look at the big scope of God in history, from creation through to new creation, well, as it were, almost in the middle of that, you've got the Jesus event. We're living here today between his coming and his return. That's exactly what the book of Hebrews calls today. A wonderful period of amazing grace, amazing toleration on God's part. And this today, well, look at, if you've got time, look at the beginning 
the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. Because this today begins with the intrusion of Jesus into history. Do you know those wonderful words? I grew up with King James English, where at diverse times and sundry ways, manners, God spoke to our fathers in the past. But in these last days, he intruded into history in Jesus. Jesus' coming marked the inauguration of the last days in which God spoke the last word. And now he's very clearly giving us the last opportunity for today if you hear his voice. It would be foolish to harden your heart and resist. Look at what Hebrews takes this theme up several places. As the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, Chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Hebrews 3, 15, today if you hear his voice, this emphasis on the importance of the now. And then there's a third aspect, where as we live out the reality of the life in this period, look at the third thing he says at verse 13, encourage one another. Chapter 3, verse 13, encourage one another daily, because this is the best antidote to the infiltration and the gradual insidious hardening of heart that can creep in even in a supposedly believing community. See to it, brothers, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily. See, here's the best as it were, prescription against people falling by the wayside. Encourage each other and encourage each other daily. This is an ongoing, never-ending activity. It is a daily activity. We desperately along this roadway need each other. We need that encouragement. We need that human touch at times. We need the reality of simply the human embrace. We need the encouragement of ones keeping us going along the way. Encourage one another daily. And I shall never forget, in a sense being rebuked once by a former rabbi in Belfast, just in this count. Let me tell you a little bit of the background of the story and then how it comes around to this idea of encouragement. I happened to be talking to Ellie, and I, we were talking about the minyam, which is the quorum that Jews men can't pray together unless they've ten, a minimum of ten. And I happened to say to him, and I, I, I just was off the top of the head, I said, how do you know when you've got ten? Do you count them as they come in? And he was obviously quite offended. And I said, I'm sorry, Ellie, I don't know what I've said. I've said something that's offended you. I'm sorry. He said, Desi, you never, ever count Jews. When you count Jews, you give them numbers. And you see, some of Ellie's family had died in Auschwitz. To give somebody a number is to depersonalize them, to dehumanize them. That was still a living memory with him. 
I said, I'm sorry, I certainly wasn't meaning in any way offensive. And then he said, don't you know the verse in Bamidbar? Don't you know the verse in Numbers? And as so often when I talked to him, I had to say, no, Ellie, I'm sorry, I, I really don't know. So he took me back to the beginning of the book of Numbers. And do you see where in our English versions, depends what English version you're using, but in the English version, in the NIV I have, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, take a census. Take a census of the whole Israelite community. That's the conceptual translation. Take a census. He took me back to the original language. And do you know what the original language says here? Literally, the Hebrew says, lift up the head of every man. Now, basically, that means, you know, count them. This is the context of a census. But you see the point he wanted to make? This was not some impersonal, statistically, statistical enumeration. It was in the context of lift up the head of every man. Every head counts. And the point he wanted to make to me, nobody is ever average. Nobody is ever a number. Nobody is ever a statistic. And what were we in Numbers 1? This was the army of God's people going up to take the land. But no one was ever just a number. Lift up the head of every man. See that incredible integrity that's given to the individual? The individual is never, ever lost sight of. Don't we desperately need that today? That sense of encouragement. That sense of recognizing individual gifts, individual integrity. That sensitivity to each other. When did we last encourage? When did you last encourage somebody? When did I last lift the phone, write a card, send flowers, just drop in a bag of sweets, just to say, mm, you're coming through a bit of a rough time, but we're here for you. This reality of encouragement, and there is not one of us who does not need that encouragement. There's this strange notion that's crept into Ulster evangelicalism. Oh, we don't want to encourage them too much. It gives them a big head. You know, I, don't, I never cease to be amazed going out churches if somebody's, maybe they've appreciated what the Bible has said to them, and they'll always say, you know, oh, I shouldn't be saying. But that was good. Oh, this mentality that has crept in through the community. They're quite easy to have remarks that will tear you down. Oh, that's a new suit you've got. Your job must be paying. You know that way? Oh, I had a lovely answer to that. I said, yes, it is a very expensive suit. It cost a man his life. And his wife passed it on to me after, she di after he died. Oh, the distorted, inverted way of thinking when so many are just crying out for encouragement, for uplift. Encourage one another while it's called today. And then hold on until the end. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. So we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end. You see, the problem in the wilderness was a lot started off 
they started off well. Hey, if these guys had been on the testimony circuit, oh, they could have told you what God had done back at the Red Sea. They could have told you what had happened at Sinai. But looking to the past was of absolutely no value if they weren't going to finish. It's the same with Jesus' parables. The two men might have built the most prestigious, astounding houses. And as they were building them, they looked so good. It was when the rains came at the end that the foundations were exposed. It's the end that counts as well as the beginning. And to reduce the message of biblical salvation to some easy decisionism that gives me the ticket into the sweet by and by with the implication that in between doesn't matter is to give and create a travesty of what the Bible actually teaches. The start and the finish are important. It is keeping going. And sometimes when the going's tough, and it can be tough in these days. We need that encouragement. We need the focus on what the Lord is doing in the bigger picture. We need to keep going towards the finish. Knowing, remember as Philippians said, he who begins a good work will finish it. This journey to the very end. And so the writer in Hebrews here is taking us back into the dusty, harsh realities of the wilderness where so many had stubbornly refused, they had proved to be unfaithful, they didn't make it to the end, and the writer in Hebrews says, tune in, listen to what has happened, hear the reality, listen in stereo, take in the message of the whole scripture, and see the reality today that we can learn from that wilderness experience, that on our journey, we continue to focus on Jesus, this much bigger picture, this much bigger building project that God's engaged in, that we need to be constantly open to the Spirit, never so entrenched in our ways that we are not open to change, but that we hear that Spirit guiding, nudging, directing, that we encourage one another, that we build one another up, and that we keep going. To the very end, to the end of the journey. Let's pray together. Father God, we look back so that we can go forward, guided by you. We pray in the name of him who is not only the way, but the truth and the life. May he continue to walk with us in the spirit on the way. In Jesus' name, amen.